It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, just before we talk to Dan Hodges from the Mail on Sunday, let's have a listen to Boris Johnson, who's explaining now why he's decided it's a great idea to self-isolate. Hi, folks. Like so many hundreds of thousands of other people across the country, I've been pinged. I've been asked to self-isolate by the test, trace and isolate system after I've been in contact with somebody who has COVID. In this case, of course, the health secretary, Sajid Javid. And we did look briefly at the idea of uh, us taking part in uh, the, the pilot scheme, which allows people to test daily. But I think it's far more important that everybody sticks to the same rules. And that's why I'm going to be self-isolating until the 26th of July, Monday, the 26th of July. And I really, I know how frustrated it all is, but I really do urge everybody to stick with the programme and take the appropriate course of action when you're asked to do so, do so by NHS test and train. Quite hard to keep a straight face, isn't it? Dan Hodges, very good morning to you. Morning. So, um, it's very important that everybody sticks to the same rules, Dan. So, does that mean that all the people who are part of this mysterious trial stroke pilot system are now going to stop doing it? Well, apparently, uh, the government's now said they're not going to take part in it anymore. Right. Uh, which is uh, which is which is good and is and is proper. Um, but as you saw, I mean, the prime minister there was saying. Uh, oh, yeah, they briefly thought about taking part in it. And he was lying. They hadn't briefly thought about taking part in it. The government's been taking part in this scheme since May. Mm. Uh, Michael Gove benefited from it. Um, Other ministers, officials have been eligible for it. Um, And frankly, as we saw in that clip on on this issue, uh, Boris is basically trying to treat uh, everybody in Britain like we're all mugs, frankly. Mm. I know. Seems remarkable, because I'm pretty sure the last time you and I spoke, Dan, um, you said you'd asked the Prime Minister's office or to Downing Street uh, in one way or another how you could apply to be part of this trial that Michael Gove was on, and they never bothered answering you. That's right. I mean, I got, I got pinged coming back from the, uh, from the G7, as a number of us uh, who attended that, that, that joyous event uh, did, and spent spent a couple of days asked downing street asked the department of health tried online to see you know how we get access to this scheme so we could we could get daily tested i mean i i i was double jabbed um and answer came there none um and i i'd actually written a piece the week before you know pointing out this ridiculous one rule for them one rule for everyone else loophole they were using um so which is why i say the idea that 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 boris you know somehow became aware of it somehow became eligible for it and then just suddenly decided actually no of course it's not it's not for us i mean it's complete rubbish as we as we all know yeah exactly right and there's some confusion as to who's been using this and utilizing it right because transport for london at one point was supposed to be but then yesterday we were told that the metropolitan line was closing down because didn't have enough people to run it on the basis that they were all at home self-isolating you're kind of going well Surely if they're in this trial, they can't be self-isolating. So are they in it or are they not in it? Well, that's well, that's one of the things. I mean, I, again, specifically asked who'd be in it. I was told, <clears throat> excuse me, I was told private sector companies were not going to have their identities revealed. But I was told a number of public sector organisations were utilising it. And I was specific, specifically told one of them was Transport for London. Hmm. But then yesterday, Transport for London popped up and said, no, they, they weren't using it and hadn't been told that they now had permission to use it. 
Yeah, so it's all very confusing, isn't it? And meanwhile, of course, you've got the Labour Party coming out today saying that, uh, you know, this is reckless, even though they support it. Uh, I can't quite work out where their position is on this. No, I don't understand where the Labour Party's position on reopening is today. I mean, they're, they're saying it's it, it's dangerous, it's reckless. But my understanding is technically they support all the measures that the government has announced, with the possible exception of masks. Mm. And given it seems to be most of the public transport operators are saying they're going to require people to wear masks anyway, um, I'm not entirely sure what Labour's position is. And as, as I think we discussed last week, given what we're seeing today, no more social distancing in pubs, no more social distancing in restaurants, no more social distancing in, in nightclubs, uh, people uh, able to go back to work. The idea that in that context, wearing a mask for a few minutes is going to significantly impact on the spread of the virus is completely... I mean, it's for the birds, right? Yeah, well, it really is. But isn't it now the case that people who are... I mean, Covidiots is trending, for example, on uh, Twitter. And I, I hate using Twitter as a, any kind of bellwether for anything, really. But, you know, these sort of so-called clever people having a go at anyone who thinks the pandemic's gone, having a go at anyone who wants to take their mask off, making out that the people who do want freedom are in some way stupid, uneducated, probably Brexiteers, almost certainly right-wing. You know, what's happened? Well, I mean, you know, we've, we've, you and I have been debating this for a, for, for a good uh, for a good length of time yeah. now, and you know exactly what my position's been. My position has always been: we need to get people jabbed, but once we've got people jabbed, then we've got then we've got to move forward. And it's actually it's the people who I was calling, you know, the lockdown deniers, lockdown skeptics, yeah. have you, who, in my view, were wrong about this, who kept saying it's never going to end, it's never going to end. Well, it has ended. I mean, you know, it, 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 it's opened up today. So arguing, well, we, we, we should extend, we should keep, we should just extend just for another month or just another month or another month. I mean, it is so counterproductive, firstly, because in my view, it, it, it emboldens those people who've been saying, oh, it's all a conspiracy, they'll, they'll never let us out. But the other key thing is, it comes back to the vaccine. We were told, get vaccinated, Vac the vaccine is the root root out of this crisis. If you get vaccinated, we can then return to we can then return to normal. We can then reopen. Well, that's what in the main people have done. Yeah. So having done that, you can't then say to them, "Oh, actually, do you know what? We know we told you if you got vaccinated, this will be the end of it." But you've got vaccinated, yeah. isn't it? And in that and in that sense, I think Boris has got it right. You know, for him to say when he did say it a couple of Mondays ago, you know, we're going to have to lift the lockdown at some point, and now is as good a time as any to do it. And I was certainly never one of those who said that we would never get out of it. I was also one of those, however, who did say that lockdowns have got limited appeal. And certainly there are those people who think we will be in another lockdown. And I don't know if they're the same people that said we'd never get out of this one. Um, I'm not so sure I believe that, because I think genuinely speaking, you know, looking at the numbers and the figures that we've got in front of us, there are some scaremongering people out there saying, oh, look at the rates going up as fast as they were going up in January. That's not true. And the number of tests that we're doing is out prodigious, out of all proportion to what we should be doing. I saw a statistic the other day that we've tested something like 250 million times in this country. And that's just the ones that we've actually registered. You know, that's ludicrous, isn't it? Except, well, yes. And I mean, I think the key for me to this, I mean, I wrote, wrote this in my column yesterday. If you go back four weeks ago, remember, which was supposed to be the original Freedom Day, mm. Boris announced he was going to delay for an extra four weeks. And at that press conference, Chris Whitty was standing at one side, Patrick Valance the other, and they both backed that move. And Patrick Valance at the time said, look, to be perfectly honest, we've looked at the data, we've looked at the figures, we've looked at the vaccinations. There comes a point where delaying any further the reopening, you don't really get much more of a significant health benefit. Mm. He was very clear about that. We are now at that at that point. Now, suddenly, as ever, Patrick Valance and Chris Whitty are suddenly shifting tack and are suddenly saying, oh, well, you know, we've got to maybe we've got to be a little bit a little bit careful. But the reality is there has always been a balance to be struck between how we protect society by directly protecting public health and how we protect society by enabling society to get back to normal in the way that we all have to if we frankly are all going to survive and it seems to me we've reached that point now you're absolutely right we can see the infection rates but we can also see the hospitalization rates and we can also see the the the, the, the mortality rates and tragic though any death is 
the idea that we should be continuing to lock down the country based on the hospitalization and death figures that we have have now is in my view mm. simply not justifiable no it really isn't dan stay with us for a moment we're going to take a short break dan hodges man on sunday commentator with us talking about freedom day which is today the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We're talking to Dan Hodges, Man on Sunday commentator, of course. And Dan, you were talking in your column yesterday about the sort of the surrounding noise and kerfuffle because it still hasn't gone away. I mean, I listened to a guy yesterday from um, University of Wellington uh, in New Zealand who was part of a group of scientists who have written a letter uh, in which they basically declared Britain's policy on COVID to be completely not just reckless but dangerous. And you just think to yourself... You know, I heard him being interviewed, and he was talking about being worried about the NHS being overwhelmed. I'm like, you live in New Zealand. You know, what's it going to do with you, to be honest, about the NHS? Is this the guy, is this the report that basically said what we're doing is going to, could, could lead to the end of the world? Basically, something? yes. Yeah, but they've got something like 80 yeah, scientists who have signed up to it. I mean, it's like the opposite of the Great Barrington yeah. report. I mean, look, I think one of the things that we have to, uh, have to acknowledge, and I, I, I wouldn't say this about all the experts although i you know again i've you know been critical in the past about some of the the advice we've been given to put it mildly but i think we've got to be honest you've got to remember that you know this has been a very very difficult hard horrendous in many ways time for the last 18 months but there are a lot of people and there are a lot of experts sort of so-called experts around the world who frankly have been having the time of their lives mm. over the last 18 months suddenly you know, they've been sitting there beavering away in their in their offices in these sort of obscure academic institutions. Nobody outside of their own particular field taking that much much notice of them. And suddenly, if they come up and they and, and they, you know, we see this all the time, if they come up with a particularly apocalyptic vision of what is about to happen, and it always leans that way. You know, it has to be apocalyptic. It has to be. This is the wrong thing. It's going to get worse billions are going to die if they do that then that's their key to a little bit of minor celebrity mm. so and they recognize i think that you know the the gravy train is coming to an end now so i'm you know i'm afraid we're going to be getting we're going to be getting a bit a bit more of this over the next few um weeks and yeah. months well i'm hoping so because i don't know how much you know about what sage and nerve tag did before the pandemic if anything i mean are we going to be rid of them uh, susan mickey was on this morning again talking about how uh, this is too soon it's too early you know we, we we've heard her before saying we should be wearing masks all the time anyway um i mean will boris actually finally make a decision which is not his forte at the moment um and just say to sage look take a step back have a long holiday go somewhere not france because you can't go there but basically just go away for a while well i think no i mean i think firstly i think we need we need sage we need an organization like sage i mean speaking to people in government i think there is a feeling that sage has over the course of the crisis become too unwieldy i mean we you know I, when i first heard about sage i thought you know there'd be like a dozen mm. you know great and the good i mean there are apparently hundreds and hundreds of no, people of them, yeah. on, on, on this thing um uh, I, I think their role in this has to be has to be examined. I think if you look at what they were saying at the start of the pandemic and the way things have panned out, they have got a lot of a lot of stuff wrong. But frankly, on this, I'm not going to give. I'm not going to let Boris duck his responsibility on this. I mean, I you know I've I've said you know again I, I wrote about it. It's quite clear that witty and Valance are, are changing tack and to an extent have pulled the rug out over the last four weeks from what they were saying four weeks ago and giving him cover four weeks ago. But at the end of the day, Boris has got a has got a man up on this sort of stuff. He's he's the prime minister. He's the one who's got who's got to make the decisions on this. You know, we saw the shambles yesterday. We've got the on, ongoing shambles actually. We haven't talked about which is the whole pandemic. Oh yeah. In which we can see what is coming down the track. I mean, literally in the next couple of weeks, this country is going to drop, grind to a halt because millions of people who are perfectly healthy are going to be forced to sit at home and isolate for 10 days and the nation's services are going to grind to a halt. Now, we know that is going to... We know today... But surely that, that is easily preventable, Dan. All you've got to do is stop doing it. It's just end the policy. Exactly. exactly. But again, Boris, at the moment, is... I mean, he's kind of lost his way again mm. in the last couple of weeks. And he, you know, you see this on a number of issues. But he, he's basically caught like a rabbit in, in headlights at the moment. He knows what's happening with the pandemic... 
He knows a decision is going to have to be taken to change the way everybody uh, isolates, particularly those in, in very important services. But he just can't take a decision at the moment. So we will have the situation, and we've seen that before from Boris. No decision will be taken. The crisis will develop. It will re a reach a critical point at which point Boris will be forced to act. But by that point, the damage will yeah. have been done. Well, I actually thought yesterday, I mean, we've got such a weird situation going on at the moment with the way the government operates, that I actually thought yesterday, if they stick to this idea that they're going to take part in this pilot system and this trial, and they're not going to self-isolate, I was beginning to wonder if that was deliberate, to make people just forget about the system and go, well, we're not doing it if you're not doing it, so get stuffed. And then suddenly it was all reversed again. I, I mean, I, I said it. I said it yesterday. I mean, I work. I, you know, I've been working in politics and and writing about politics for a long time. And normally, when politicians do daft things, you can see somewhere in the background some sort of rationale. Hmm. You know, you can you, you may disagree with it, but you can understand it. What they thought they were doing yesterday, and and frankly, it's going to be interesting. I mean, I, I want to spend a bit this week trying to have a dig around and find out what happened because we haven't heard the back. We haven't got to the bottom of no. all it. There's a reason why Boris must have known perfectly well what a political hit he was going to take. Yeah, I mean, surely that couldn't have been a surprise. I mean, I was hearing exactly. people saying the other last night, "Oh, well, they didn't realise quite what the backlash would be." Well, why not? I mean, how? I mean, the backlash had already been incurring. I said, like I said, I wrote about it. Other people were writing about it. Questions were being asked in mm. the House Commons about this scheme, and yet he still somehow thought he could get away with it. Mm. And I genuinely genuinely don't know how or why and it does raise questions moving forward about what is going on in number 10 at the moment and you know we, we've all seen all the psychodrama since dom cummings got got booted out we all know the problems and and, and the issues around dom cummings you know he's he's no <laughs> he's no mate of mine mm. but equally it's quite clear that since Cummings left, there's a there's a political hole sitting at the heart of Downing Street. Yeah. Boris doesn't know which way to turn. He doesn't know whether to stick and twist. He doesn't know whether to fight the culture war or try and end the culture war. He doesn't know whether to push ahead with Freedom Day or delay Freedom Day. He doesn't know whether he should deal with the, the pandemic or sit back until it just everything grows, grows to a halt. And, you know, it, it he's going to have to get a grip because... If he doesn't, then what was supposed to be the end today of the great pandemic crisis, it could it, it could actually just be the start of it politically. Well, yeah, because we're now about to go. By the time he comes back from his uh, self-imposed isolation, it's going to be recess. It's going to be summertime. Um, and all they're going to talk about, presumably from this point on, is climate change. And they're going to be working their way up to the whole Glasgow conference. And I imagine that it'll just drift, won't it? Yeah, well, I mean, exactly. I mean, if, if all we're going to get... Uh, you know, with all these other issues, if all we're going to do, do is, you know, is Boris, you know, embracing his whole big, you know, hug a fish agenda, right. then he's going to be in serious, he's going to be in serious political trouble. Yeah. I mean, I... you know, I was speaking, I mean, speaking to Tory MPs yesterday, you know, they were, again, it, it, it you know, sometimes when you speak to Tory MPs, they just like, they go, oh, for God's sake, Boris, it's just... You know, what's he like? What's he like? But it's kind of Boris being Boris. Yesterday, it was literally, I don't understand what's yeah. going on. How yeah. could they have done that? Well, it's getting harder and harder to stand behind him and say what he's doing is right. Even though some of them are still doing that, there's less of them, fewer of them. Well, because he's not prepared to stand by behind what he's doing himself. Mm. You know, this was supposed to be the great freedom day. Suddenly it's, oh, well, you know, don't be too free. Yeah, don't feel well, like it, Go to a nightclub. Like be, be, <laughs> well, exactly. Go to a nightclub, but be careful how you go to a nightclub. Yeah. How do you carefully go to a nightclub? What does that mean I, in this context? I really don't know. Go That's to the, the pub. Thing. Go to the pub and stand at the bar with your mates, but do it carefully. Yeah. Well, what does that mean? You know. I know, and we shouldn't they, really be asking that question. We are asking it simply because it's been done so badly. I mean, I don't really want them to tell me how to stand at the bar. You know what I mean? And so, I, therefore, I don't wish to ask them permission to do it. So I'll do it. But also, I don't need to be told to do it carefully. I mean, you know, what am I, 10? But, but, again, but again, it's the situation where they say, right, we're going to give you personal responsibility. 
we're going to stop telling what telling you what to do. But do it carefully. <laughs> well, come on. I know. I know. Bizarre, isn't it? Great to talk to you, Dan. Thanks very much indeed. Dan Hodges, Man on Sunday commentator there. Uh, as puzzled, I think, as many people are by what in what on earth is it that they are doing? Freedom Day. Does it feel like that for you? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk to Michael Kill, Chief Executive of the Nighttime Industries Association, who I'm sure uh, will be very, very happy that last night at midnight, an awful lot of clubs, nightclubs in particular, were allowed to open and did open. Michael, very good morning to you. Good morning. Good Quite, morning. I, I guess for you, this is Freedom Day personified, isn't it? Uh, it very much is. Um, uh, but as you can understand, since we've heard the announcement from the Prime Minister, um, there's there's been some levied concern or caution. And as you can understand, right the way throughout the week um, and, and up until the point that the guidance was released, which was very late in the day, uh, there was concern from operators uh, on exactly what the expectation was. So, you know, it's been a huge challenge. Um, obviously, there were people that opened last night, um, early hours of the morning. Uh, which was great to see, and the feedback's been great. But the 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 big one is this weekend, where we need to deliver and make sure that we're we're generating safe environments for customers and particularly our staff to come back to. Yes, and I don't know whether it's too early to say, but could, do you have any idea roughly of how many clubs actually opened last night and and opened their doors and actually did business? Uh, I think I mean it did. It was differing. I mean, in in major cities, they uh, opened up because the opportunity was there potentially with a footfall outside of that it was very limited i think we estimated from a straw poll uh, potentially between 20 and 30 percent businesses uh, tried to open their doors but they the majority of those were in major cities not in the suburbs or, or urban uh, sort of development areas so for for us we saw some open but not the levels that we're potentially going to see mm. over the weekend right and how was it i mean were people just going back to normal as as if it was i mean, was just talking to dan hodges there who was saying it's a bit confusing this whole freedom day thing where they're saying go to a nightclub but do it carefully and people kind of go in sorry what do you mean by that exactly uh, yeah, I mean, look, it, it, there's been a huge amount of confusion, ambiguity in, in the way that the guidance has been represented, you know, from COVID passport to not COVID passport to, you know, make sure you get a negative test. Not, not, you know, it, it's, it's been extremely confusing in terms of what's mandating and not, mm. what's not. And the industry have had to do a big job in, in terms of letting their customers know because they're confused, let alone the operators. And for the guidance to come out so late, it's been extremely troubling. But look, I, I think last Last night, um, I mean, the outpour of emotion of people being back into these types of premises and enjoying social, some sort of level of social freedom, but with caution and with some measures in place, which, you know, we feel are necessary to uh, ensure that we uphold our end of the bargain, because the last thing we want is to be closed down in several months time leading into the winter and mm. and autumn, which is, is, is where the concern is levied. At the yes. Moment. And my understanding from people I've heard speaking uh, as club owners is that there are they aren't operating any kind of testing system because it would just be too complicated. Well, it's extremely challenging. I mean, you know, even with the app system that, that we've been presented with, um, if you take a lateral flow test, which as you can appreciate with the majority of our age groups not being vaccinated, um, part of it is self-certification or presenting a negative test. It could be anyone's test. So, you know, we're still levied with a real uh, level of concern in terms of fraudulence. Uh, you know, that on top of ID, that on top of arguments with people who are potentially intoxicated, mm. which we can't let in as well. You can imagine the divisive nature of a front door yes uh, you know coming up and those frontline staff we've got to consider and protect and it's one of the challenges that we've had back to government in terms of clarity and the way that this has mm. been set up well it's interesting you say that because um, I, I i'm absolutely in agreement with you it's a tough enough job that running a door at a nightclub without having to do all of that sort of business as well because one of the things we're going to talk about later on the show is the whole wembley fiasco and the fact that their security was so awful and i'm told by people who were there that one of the reasons it was probably as bad as it was was all of the security people were concerned only with one thing and that was to see whether or not you had some kind of either covid passport or, or you could show that you'd had a negative test and everything else didn't matter well, it's, it's interesting you should mention it. I mean, we, we um, work very closely with security. The conditions on our license on many of the premises out there say you have to have a certain level of security. The feedback we got was that there, there potentially were some shortages there. And that's a, a long standing issue in terms of the security sector. Mm. So 
the worry we have and something we're seeing right the way across the board is businesses having to close because conditions on their license that require them to have a certain level of security are not able to be fulfilled because people have left that sector because it's been closed for such a long time, either Brexit's hit or, you know, we're sat challenged by an environment where people have gone off and found other jobs and mm. they're not back to it. And, you know, there, there is a huge shortage, not only of chefs, but also of SAA licensed security. And it's a big issue in terms of the front line, particularly as there's so much focus on protect duty and, you know, that security line being that first line of defence in terms of counter-terror. Well, this is the thing. And as far as the way uh, the businesses are able to reopen and, and what are the sort of practical problems of having something shut for as long as it's been shut, effectively, you know, 18 months more or less, um, presumably they've had to expend money on keeping the, um, you know, the place clean, keeping it sort of uh, spick and span, making sure the air conditioning systems are running and working and all of that. Uh, there's a huge amount of work to do. I mean, you know, seven days notice is not enough. We saw the outcry off the back of the 21st. But, you know, you're talking about water systems to, uh, you know, maintenance of air conditioning systems, drink delivery, you know, uh, food outlets if you're serving food, um, training of staff, because there's a whole nother level of training that's got to come in now. Um, and you're talking about those additional, additional public health requirements that have got to come in place and remain in place until we, you know, we, we get to a sufficient point that we can let them go if mm. we ever let them go so for us there's a massive amount of work to do and I, and I think the government underestimate how committed and driven our industry are to make sure we remain open yes and in terms of recouping losses that have been not able you know you haven't been able to make any money for, for such a long period of time um how soon do you think you will be back in the in the black as it were well, there's, there's estimation. I mean, I, I've spoke quite heavily with Sasha Lord and, and some of the other representatives up and down the country. We're estimating up to five years before some of these businesses retain some financial stability. Many of them have taken loans. Uh, many of them are sort of borrowing money from families, taking remortgaging their house to sustain their position. And, you know, it, it's a horrendous environment. I mean, even the furlough, the 10% mm. If you think if you're a nightclub operator, all of your staff have been furloughed. So you have a bigger proportion in terms of cash terms to pay out uh, outside of other industries who potentially are part open and have a lesser amount of contribution to give in. So it's it's a very difficult situation where nightclubs have been really, really squeezed. Yes, it has been really, really tough. And Michael, I can only say, thank goodness, finally, you're able to open and hopefully uh, you'll be able to have a great summer, uh, what's left of it. And uh, into the autumn we keep our fingers crossed right uh very much so well i hope to see you out at some point listen i'm i've been out all the time and now that clubs are open i may just have to pop into a club why not you know uh, i don't have to go to bed till three anyway <laughs> we uh, shall see well. michael thanks very much indeed michael kill chief executive of the nighttime industries association if you were out and about in a club last night what was it like was it weird was it different were people behaving in a way that you didn't expect them to behave i've got lots of you getting in touch about what's going on today freedom day supposedly uh, doesn't look like much is changing the world of the GP surgery because Tracy has sent me this uh, that she's got from her local GP surgery. Dear patients, we're unable to provide any face-to-face -face appointments today due to shortage of staff requiring self-isolation. Please ring the surgery only if you need urgent medical help. Thank you. Should we give them a round of applause? Well done, guys. Very good. Let's clap for the NHS. Tremendous. What a collection of planks. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. And it's time to say a very good morning to Mr Peter Hitchens. Peter, how are you? Morning. So, are you feeling free? Are you feeling as if uh, the, 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 the gloom has been lifted from your shoulders? No. <laughs> I sort of expected that answer, to be honest. What's different? A little bit is different. A few more people on the trains at the railway stations this morning not wearing masks. Mm. Uh, but in, I haven't tested it out fully to see how it is. I haven't been to any shops lately, for instance. Uh, so I, I don't know. I think there will probably be a, a, a larger number of people who will uh, who will not do that. But it's still a very, very, uh, very, very large number who, who will con continue to wear masks, it seems to me. And my, my view of them is that one has to be sympathetic to them. And they, they still believe that they're in danger. So... We have to, as I've always said, it's like having members of a, of a religion I don't agree with. I mean, I have to treat their beliefs with respect, even if I don't follow them myself. Uh, but they, I, I still think they have far too much power over the rest of us. 
Well, that's the trouble, isn't it? My interest is, is in getting information today from people out and about as to what the kind of the shops are doing, what people are being told when they get onto public transport, because at the moment it I seems... I can tell you that. Go on. Instead of the usual lecture about how it's a legal obligation, there's now a long, an even longer lecture about how they would really like us to do it, please. Uh, and it, it, a great deal of effort is being, you know, you cannot go on a train journey these days without being subjected to some constant uh, hospital radio uh, broadcast. Yeah. Uh, sometimes lasting you know, four or five minutes from start to finish. Mm. Well, you, along with the see it, say it, sorted stuff about the British Transport Police, there's a long, long thing appealing to us all to carry on wearing masks. Yeah. Uh, which is, is almost, has almost the same effect. I, I, looking around, there were, I think, probably in the carriage that I was in, a couple more people not wearing masks, who I think normally would have been. But in general, right. it was still, and of course, all the staff are doing so, and all the staff at the station were doing so. I would imagine they're under considerable pressure from their employers yes. to do that, too. You can't tell whether it's voluntary or not. No. I mean, I've, I've seen a um, couple of emails now, one from my son's bus company, uh, Stagecoach, which he takes the bus to uh, to go to college, uh, and saying, and this, this same phrase appears in both uh, emails, the other one from Tesco that we've just been talking to a caller about, please continue to wear a mask, and this is the key phrase, if you can, and that seems to be the new mantra. Now, I don't know what that means particularly, if you can, well, I could or I can, but I may not. I, there's, there's, there's been a very deep misunderstanding in lots of places about the nature of exemptions, and, and, and I think that that continues to persist, but there's no point in trying to explain it to people. Uh, it's, it is, I suppose, probably slightly easier now not to wear a mask than it was before. It probably still takes a bit of nerve for a lot of people. Uh, but there you are. I, I just wish more people would pay attention to the evidence. You, you may have noticed that last week I somehow got Nick Robinson, the BBC, to reverse yes. his position on masks. I mean, hectoring and saying that they were assuming that they were effective, actually stating quite publicly in an interview that, uh, that the loose cloth masks which everybody wears are mm. no use, which mm. I think is actually beyond dispute. I think any serious person even on the mask side, imagines that those things can do any good. I mean, they've got flapping holes on the side of them, even if people don't wear them around their chins. How this strange thing, I keep seeing young women, I think, how, 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 how on earth is that woman, is she wearing a false beard? Uh, because they've got them around their chins, in right. the way that people have those chin strap beards. And right. It's really, really peculiar. Of course she hasn't got a beard, but the way in which people wear them, half down or entirely mm. down, is also fascinating. But and, and pull them out of their pockets and then put them back in their pockets. Yes. Anybody who knows anything about, about hospital mask wearing and the, the N95 mask knows you mustn't touch them. Right. Uh, as soon as you take them off, they, they have to be replaced by, by another one. They can't. They, they have to be tightly fitted to the face, quite uncomfortably. A totally different thing. From what, so I don't want to encourage the authorities to demand that we all wear N95 masks. Apart from anything else, it would bankrupt the country because they cost about five quid a game. Yeah, right. Uh, but I, it... it, it it is, a, it is a simple point, which which one can't help. But even people who understand this must know that these these tokens which people are wearing can't really do much good, especially against aerosols. No, and there really is very little uh, in the way now of anyone who will say that they do. Um, it's now, as we said last oh, week, I think it's now it's now become a different reason. It's now become well, you've got to try and consider other people, and that's why you should wear it. Well, sure, but, I mean, but it, it, there, there's this curious thing. I mean, can, can, uh, can virus aerosol only travel one way through a piece of cloth? If it, if, if, and we know that there's no proof that it protects us from infection. If they can't get in, uh, if they, or if they can get in as it, as, as, um, through, through the mask, then uh, why shouldn't they be able to get out? Mm. But, no, there are plenty of people, including, I think, there's a leading academic called Trish Greenhouse, who continues to believe very strongly in Russia to put that position forward and get a lot of airtime for her position too. So it's not gone away. Uh, nothing, none of this has gone away. What worries me far more is, is how much we're just going to come back. Uh, the, I, I suspect that quite a lot of the, the zero COVID people and the, the rest of the militants who, who want to have us pretty much permanently under control for health reasons are waiting for their opportunity to say, oh, look, you relaxed on July the 19th. Mm. Look what happened. Look at these huge figures for so-called infections, uh, which are, of course, obtained by having huge numbers of tests looking for them and don't indicate any necessarily any uh, any actual illness among the, 
those. And then there's, they point to hospital admissions. Well, hospital admissions, if, again, what do these figures mean? Mm. The last time I tried to look at hospital admissions connected with COVID, what I found was that the people were in hospital, they'd been tested positive for COVID, but it, it, you couldn't state that's why they were in hospital. And they'd been in hospital for something completely different. Yes. As with deaths with COVID, are they deaths from COVID or are they people who died who who got COVID. And one, one thing we do know for sure, if you wanted to get COVID, the place to, 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 to go would be a hospital where the injured. Well, precisely. It's astonishing. So it's not particularly surprising that people die in hospital with COVID, but have they died? I mean, I, but nobody examines these uh, these statistics in a particularly rational or forensic fashion because there's this huge desire, both among the lobby, the zero COVID lobby, and the people who want us permanently under control, and among many frightened people, uh, never ever to go back to the way we lived before and we have to recognize this this is not a liberty loving country anymore no and for some unfortunate people um and one of them ashton has uh, t- sent me a, a message today a, a tweet in which he says that his company have sent him um an email suggesting that uh, while it's great news that the lockdown has been lifted uh, they will be testing uh, even more now uh, that employees come into to the office they'll be testing them three times a week now oh. now you, some people don't care about being tested i refuse to be tested i've never been tested i won't take a test just because somebody wants me to um and i certainly won't take a test if there's nothing wrong with me no i but it, it, i say there is this this the, the fear has gone in so deep uh, and fear is irrational. It's it's in, completely immune to reason. Has mm. uh, anyone ever tried to to, to, to reason with a, with a, a large group of people, uh, in uh, uh, perhaps on a demonstration or something like that, and suggest that some of the things that they're saying don't uh, don't actually won't actually withstand serious examination? Mm. But the, the very rapidly the response turns turns to anger. Uh, people don't listen because they are they are actually they're safer in their certainty and fear than they would be in a reasoning world. And that's what we've come to. And I, the, the damage done to, to reason in politics and public life and broadcasting and, and universities and everywhere else by this is considered, they, they were really quite badly damaged. I think we've been turning away from, from reason and the proper scientific method in this mm. country for a long while. But these past 18 months have been a major turn back towards what looks to me very like superstition. Mm. Well, it's interesting. I used I used that very word this morning when I was talking to people, uh, talking about the people, the numbers of people who are out there wearing masks. It is almost like a superstition that they're suffering from. Well, is it? But before people knew things about diseases, they did have what were more or less superstitions, but were, were respected in a way as, as solutions. I mean, in my hometown of Oxford, there is a stream called the Trill Mill Stream. It was a filthy open sewer in the nineteenth century. And it was a great cholera outbreak. In the b- before it was discovered for certain by John Snow that uh, cholera was actually mm. linked to dirty water. Yeah, the belief was that cholera was spread by what's called miasma, a sort of uh, a sort of invisible cloud of, of infection, mm. which came out of such places. So that the governing body of Christchurch, one of the great colleges of Oxford and full of very very highly qualified academic persons, voted to build quite high walls on either side of this stream, which are still there. Mm. So. Uh, to keep the cholera in. Uh, that, that was the level. And we, we seem to have reverted to yes. this sort of view of, of disease as, a, as, a, as, a, as an impenetrable miasma, which, which can be kept out by physical objects, uh, which I don't think in most cases is really true. No. And it's certainly not um, provably true, and that's, that's for sure, even though people like Sadiq Khan continually say... Well, of course, there uh, there is great evidence to show that masks will stop the spread of the disease. Well, there isn't. Well, he it. There isn't. Well, he's never challenged to say what it is. I mean, uh, look, of course, there are there are hazmat suits and and, and, and tight fitting masks, particularly ones which cover the eyes, uh, the sort of things which you would use in a say an Ebola outbreak, which do indeed get in the way of infection. But I think it's impracticable uh, to ask the mass of population to wear things of this kind. And that's the difference. Obviously, there are you know, there are really, really strong precautions which can be taken. But these, these, these are so costly and difficult and very, very hard for most people to wear properly mm. and, to, and to follow the instructions. That's not a practicality. I, but the whole mask thing, I, I think Graham Brady wrote an article in the Mail on Sunday yesterday saying it was, a, it, it was much more of a political symbol than, a, than, a, than an actual protection. And I think that remains the case. People wear them as a, as a, as a sign of of compliance 
uh, with the new regime. Yeah, which is rather sad. You also wrote in your column this week, Peter, about the police um, and Christopher Dick in particular. She's obviously asking now for an extension to her, what can only be described as troubled tenure, because I can't, I'm struggling to think of anything that she's actually got right while she's been in charge of the Metropolitan Police. No, it's extraordinary, isn't it, the way she persists. But I, I remember reading an article about her, um, actually by an old friend of mine, David Rose, in the Observer newspaper many years ago, mm. describing her. When the Observer uh, was still a good paper. Well, yeah, I mean, the thing, but point was that it, what, what they were saying was this was a person who, who, who made bargains with demonstrators rather than, and, 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 and was in general a, a, the sort of police officer who liberals love. And she'd obviously, it seemed to me, been, been picked from a very early age that, as, as, as someone who might well make the first female Metropolitan Commissioner. And mm. I pretty much predicted it at the time. And I've watched her rise and rise and rise. And the, the fascinating thing people often don't realise is she'd actually left the Metropolitan Police and gone to work for the Foreign Office before she was picked for this job. Mm. Uh, she, she'd actually ceased to be a police officer really? and, and then came back to do it. It's a forgotten part. I, I don't... It, it, it's, it's quite clear that what she symbolises... I mean, I, I, I have actually had some communication with her. She's a perfectly nice person. I don't mm. know what she symbolises is, is a new form of policing, the sort mm. of policing that says that all uh, crime and disorder is actually caused by social problems, that the job of the police is to be as paramilitary social workers. There is no more any right and wrong. The police aren't there to, to, to scare wrongdoers into behaving, which is actually the... Mm. the very simple description of what they used to be for, they're, they're there for a completely different reason. And, and they're much, much more political. And their upper ranks, really since the 1980s, have been increasingly filled with people who, uh, who can only be described as strongly politically correct. And since the McPherson report, that accelerated. And then, of course, the, the, the recruitment of, of constables, uh, the people who we actually encounter, has also changed. Mm. Very different sorts of people from the sort that you and I will remember. Yeah. Uh, from the police. So I, the, 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 it is a wholly different organisation with a wholly different purpose. And whatever it is any good for, I'll tell you what it isn't any good for. It's not any good for preventing or investigating actual crime. And it's not really very much good at, uh, at, at policing against disorder at football matches. Uh, I've been saying this now. I remember when I first tentatively began to say it, uh, getting into some trouble with my readers, more than 20 years ago, and I wrote a book about it in 2003, explaining how it had happened and, and, and where it had all gone wrong. I, I can't get any purchase on this. Mm. I say it over and over and over again, but whenever I, even apparently quite intelligent, literate politicians, but the moment they start talking about the police, they start saying, we need to have more bobbies on the beat. They yes. always say it. Right. By saying those words, they reveal that they know nothing whatever about the police. There hasn't been any such thing as a bobby for something in the region of 30 years. Right. There hasn't been anything such as a beat for about the same length of time. So putting more bodies on the beat is a bit like you know, put, putting more aliens on Jupiter. Yeah. It just isn't simply something within their power. <laughs> and yet they keep saying it because they don't understand what's happened. Yes. And they can't be bothered to find out. And that is just the nature of so much politics. When, it, when it, I keep writing these books, I, think, I don't really know, I, I know vaguely what's happened, but I don't know in detail. Let's find out. And mm. I go into the archives and I look it up. It's not all that hard to find. I suddenly find myself in possession of not very difficult to find, not very complicated knowledge. And I look at and I look at the speeches and, and remarks of politicians. I find they don't know any of this, mm. and it's distressing. Yes, to me. no, it's That's very distressing. I keep on saying it. It's not hard to find out what's happened. No, if you, if you don't want this sort of police force, it would be very easy to put it right, but nobody does. No, quite. Stay with us, Peter. We're going to stop for a moment. Peter Hitchens is here with us, man on Sunday columns. We're talking about the police. I've got some more things to say about Cressida Dick and why the police force in London, certainly, and possibly in the rest of the country, is not fit for purpose, rather like so many uh, of our actual public sector businesses. They're just not very good. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
talking to Peter Hitchens uh, about a great many things, including, of course, the conduct of the police um, in this country at the moment, because one of the things that they were pretty much incapable of, of, of coping with, it would seem, Peter, uh, was the Wembley uh, farce at the, uh, the, the, the final of the, of the Euros, but not so, just the Wembley farce, the farce of what was going on in central London, uh, which more or less got to- taken over by a sort of a rampaging mob of drunk people. Well, yes, they've shown this before in the supposed riots some years ago in in, in the capital, which were actually just an outbreak of disorder and looting. It took an amazing length of time to recognise what was going on and respond to it and and to pick up a few stragglers and and bring them to court uh, rather than uh, the people who were at the the forefront of the the looting and troublemaking. I think got away almost entirely scot-free. They don't actually have anymore the purpose which they were set up for. They have this social work purpose, uh, which involves all kinds of decisions about who should or should not be deployed. Another thing which is going on, I think, in a lot of public services at the moment, which may have affected the response to the to the football match, is the huge numbers of people self-isolating, yeah. uh, which is a, a major problem, I think, in all public services. I'm sure we're going to find shops closing and trains cancelled in increasing numbers because of this. Yes. And you say, well... If they, given that the government could, by some small tweak, uh, reduce the numbers of people being pinged, you have to ask why don't they do that? And one has to suspect that the answer is that there are people within government who quite want to reintroduce a lockdown by the back door, mm. which is effectively what this this pandemic is causing. So that may have something to do with it. It also causes problems for, for, for the National Health Service, which has very large numbers of staff mm. uh, isolating mm all the time, as well as the, the beds being much further distanced from each other, which reduces its ability to respond yes. to anything. But this I, is the thing. The I mean, other, all things enormously complicated, as, as well as the police being just having the wrong idea of what it is they're for, they do also face this problem, and we have to be aware of it. Yeah. And the thing, the thing we discovered yesterday, which we didn't discover, we were re-informed of it, because we had already been told by Mike Hancock in detail, and, and, and by Dominic Cummings earlier, is the people who devise these policies don't believe their own propaganda. No. They don't, when it comes to it, behave the way they tell us to behave. And all of the problems in the NHS, I was listening perhaps to the same interview you were listening to yesterday. There was a guy from something like NHS Support or something, one of those kind of ancillary NHS mm. bodies, talking about how the reason why hospitals were having problems and struggling was one as you say because they were spacing out the beds two lots of people were off because they were self-isolating and three uh, they built up a huge backlog of cases which were not involving covid because they treated That's anybody enormous. and all of that is the fault of the nhs and the way the nhs is managed none of that has got anything to do with the way covid actually affected them well no it has a lot to do with the way that the government reaction yeah to that's what i mean Right, so the the the, the NHS, as we know, is is is, um, is 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 full of good, competent, hardworking, courageous people. We, we but it's not. It's, it's also it's full very, of complete, very, very useless managers. Very poor organisation. Yeah, different thing altogether. And it, and it, un, but under these pressures, any organisation would struggle when you, at a moment of, of difficulty, huge numbers of your staff are unable to work because they've been sent home. Uh, and when your your capacity, your bed capacity, which has already been reduced by Labour and Conservative governments, I should say, far below where it used to be, is even more greatly reduced by this extra spacing, then you're going to struggle. Uh, and rather than banging pots and pans and saying how wonderful it is, it's much, much more sensitive. People offered constructive criticism of how it, of how it was being run and got politicians to pay, pay some attention to it. Right. And the more you praise something, the less it's criticised and the less it will improve. But the problem as well for me with the police and, and many of our public sector uh, sort of leaders, if you like, is that they appear to have learned all of what they know about the business they're in sort of in a lecture theatre rather than actually doing a job in the business, you know. And so with Cressida Dick, her, her, her sort of version of how to be a police officer is what she learned when she was in university rather than, you know, walking around. Well, sure. I, I think she did a, a thesis on the on the miners' strike. Uh, Great. I think you can. I think she can reply with you know, though that she she uh, she did do the basic stuff at the beginning. She has been through the ranks. Again, I, it, it's not that the problem is not so much what she did as what she thinks, mm. and what she thinks. So this has been the problem since Roy Jenkins revolutionised policing practically in the nineteen sixties. What he did was he turned the police from a preventive force, which is what it had always been before. It was quite expensive 
particularly in the new towns and the big new housing states, to control. Uh, and they, they had, at that point, a recruitment crisis. So Jenkins responded to this by saying, well, actually, what we should do instead is, is react, uh, put policemen in cars, uh, let people bring them up when they needed them. But, of course, if you do that, if you wait for crime to happen, uh, then you, you've, you've completely abandoned your main purpose. Mm. The simple point, you cannot unburgle someone who has been burgled. You cannot unmug someone. Who has been mugged? You, 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 you cannot unattack un, un someone who's been attacked. The whole point about the police was they had big, visible stations in the middle of towns, which everybody could see, out of which came foot patrolling constables who were there on the streets and could appear at any moment and made people think, well, maybe if I do this, I'll get caught. Mm. And all that vanished. And then along came the political revolution in the police, in which they decided they were not really interested in prosecuting uh, or pursuing crime. Mm. And they always say, we haven't got the numbers. I mean, I've been through this so many times. I went into the numbers, and they've, they've actually got more numbers, both per head of population and absolutely, than they ever had mm. in the days when they used to do the job properly. But it's what they always say. And when I began saying this, I have to say, I used to get a lot of stick from uh, from members of the public who so you can't attack the police, they're nice. And that's pretty much gone. Because <laughs> most people who encounter with the police is, is disappointing. Yes, nice, not well like, over got the police coming out and saying, well, we haven't got the staff. And I, I, I said, no, that's a, a bit by bit by bit. After nearly 20 years of saying this, I now find, as with so many other things that I said 20 years ago, other people joining in. Well, look, learn from this, guys. I was right then. It was you know, 20 years ago. I was right. If you, if you listened to me then, we could have fixed it by now. Uh, and, and here are some other things I'm right about we could fix. Please pay attention a bit more. Yes, I mean, it's not much to ask, Peter, for heaven's sake. Thank you very much indeed. Peter Hitchens, Man on Sunday columnist, uh, once again giving us the benefit of his wisdom. Just listen to him. You know, if only the government would listen to talk radio. They do sometimes. They do sometimes do what we want. But not enough, I think you'll find. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on talk radio. Many people saying that uh, uh, in some shops you've got about half and half. Uh, some people wearing masks, some people not. The younger people tend to be not wearing them. The older people tend to be wearing them. I don't really have a problem at all with people wearing masks if that's what you want to do. Uh, I just have a slight issue uh, with how anything is policed at this moment in time. For example, there is an anti-lockdown protest going on uh, in Parliament Square at the moment. People are saying, why? We've lifted all the restrictions. Well, not quite, because if you go on the tube right now and if you go on the tram in, in Manchester or in Birmingham, uh, you are required, I believe, to wear a mask. But we've got to talk to Chris Philp, Home Office and Justice Minister, about a bunch of stuff, uh, including um, a new bill in which uh, refugees will be offered the chance to settle in this country. Chris, a very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Can I ask you this question, just because I'm a bit unsure um, what does it mean if you go on the tube and they say, would you mind wearing a mask? And you say, actually, no, it's a bit too hot today. I don't think I will, thanks. Have they got the right to stop you getting on or have they got the right to make you wear one? Well, I mean, that's obviously up to TfL, Transport for London, who run the underground system and Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London. Well, no, I want to know what the legal position is, Chris. Well, um, I mean, when I was on the tube this morning on the way in, I mean, I chose to wear a mask. Wear a mask. I think that's the right thing to do. Um, I would have thought that uh, Transport for London do have the right to... Um, why, is, why is it the right thing to do, Chris? Well, because uh, personally, um, I think, it, you know, I've got used to wearing it, personally. It doesn't really cause me any inconvenience. I don't really mind doing it. But what if it and causes other people inconvenience? If it, and if it, well, I'm talking about my personal choice. And if it protects other people a bit... Um, then I no, but you've, no, but you've just said, Chris, it's the right thing to do, suggesting that it's the right thing for everybody to do. Well, I think it's the right thing for me to do personally. And but I also think also actually on this one, I don't normally support Sadiq Khan, but on this one, um, I don't think it's unreasonable to ask people to take this little precaution, um, which doesn't really cause anyone any inconvenience. And it, and it, and it might well it might well help. Well, why did um, why so did the prime minister say that it was then down to individuals as to what they should do? Well, in the case of Transport for London, they do have the right, obviously, to make the rules about what you do and don't do on the underground. And I think, um, you know, we have to respect that. And uh, Transport for London has said they think we should wear masks on the tube. So because I believe in the rule of law and all the rest of it. Well, it's um, not a law. I, That's I just, my, that, I'm asking you as the Justice Minister. It's not a law, is it? Well, I think Transport for London are entitled to specify conditions about, you know, if people using their trains should do this or do that. 
So I think they are entitled to make. Yeah, but what what would the, what's the legal position? Because I'm interested in this purely and simply for my, myself and for other people who don't wish to any longer wear a mask yeah. since it is no longer a legal requirement. Why would why would we be concerned about not being allowed to use the train? Well, I would I would I would imagine that they don't have a power of arrest. Obviously, only only the police have a power of arrest. But I would imagine that they do have the right to deny entry to the tube system if somebody doesn't comply with their various um, rules and regulations like for example if somebody is you know drinking when they shouldn't be that sort of thing right so um but you know, equally but equally you can have an um you, you can have an exemption because you feel anxious yeah, you can have an exemption if you have a particular reason not to wear it but mike i've got to say speaking personally as a londoner who uses the train and the tube every day i actually don't have a problem uh, myself complying with it because it's for me it's not an inconvenience um, it might help other people. So why, unless you've got a particular medical reason, why wouldn't you want to do it? Well, it's so, very un- well. I find it very uncomfortable. Yeah. Well. Um, what should I do? You, you may. Well, you should wear it because that's what the that's. What I the, should wear it, even though I find it uncomfortable and it's not a legal requirement. Well, because Transport for London are entire. I'm not. I'm not used, by the way, to defending Transport for London. Um, but they're entirely. Well, I don't understand why you are. Set the rule. Well, because I they, believe they, in they the went rule. against government policy. Yeah. And, and they're, enti- well, they're, they're entitled to set rules, okay? And as a Londoner who uses the tube every day, I don't mind following that rule. And if it helps other people... Yeah, but it doesn't help it. other people, does it? Well, you know, we've been wearing masks for a long time now. If it, if I it, haven't. Even, even if you haven't... Okay, I, don't, I don't wear a mask when I'm walking down the street, do you? But if it, not, not in the street, no. Because I don't wear a mask in the pub, do you? But if it... Well, you, I do if I'm uh, walking around, like to the to the to the. Well, we, well you don't have to now. It's not. It's, it's Chris. You don't have to. It's not a legal requirement. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of things you don't have to do, but you might you might nonetheless well, choose. Well, to do if you want people not to do something, why would you make it possible for them to do it? So, for example, if the prime minister thinks like you do, why did he make it possible for people not to wear a mask? Well, look, you've got to take a proportionate approach. Right? We've had a bunch of legal restrictions that have been in place now for well over a year. And, you know, those... And they've all gone. And and they've all gone. But just because the restrictions have gone doesn't mean to say individuals um, or indeed other public bodies like TfL um, should stop exercising any caution and any judgment. Now, if you're walking down the street... So are you saying then that if I go to a restaurant this afternoon and they have decided to do away with social distancing, as is their right under the new law, um, that they shouldn't have done that? No, it's a, it's a it's a choice they can exercise, okay, and the individuals can exercise. In the case of a public body like TfL, they are entitled to to make their own rules about what you can and can't do on the tube. They've chosen to make a rule um, which that you should wear a mask on the tube, and, and I, I'm going to respect that. And I think other people should respect. Well, why, well, why didn't the prime minister say the wearing of masks is no longer a legal requirement apart from on public transport? Then, well, because I don't understand the logic, Chris. Well, it is logical because it's completely logical to say that individual now we've restricted the national legal restrictions it's completely logical to say that individual people that run restaurants or indeed tfl running running the tube network can make their own judgment and if they want to do something that's stricter than is legally required so you're quite so you're quite comfortable as the justice minister with people being unable to access a service that they pay for by taxation simply because they're different from other people about wearing masks well look i think I'm comfortable with the fact that some public transport operators like TfL have decided to keep the requirement in place. They're entitled to do that. Yes, but um, they're not entitled to stop people who pay taxes in London from using their service just because of a, a, a restriction which they've invented after the Prime Minister said it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, well, look, I mean, they're, they're entitled to put those restrictions in place if they, if they think I'm they're I'm astonished that you would say that, Chris. So you're happy for there to be a two-tier society then? I'm happy for, look, I'm happy for someone that runs their own restaurant or someone that runs their own pub, or for, you know, I went to the theatre with my kids in central London on Sunday, the, the, the theatre had us all spaced out, or TfL running the tubes. If they think in their particular circumstances that it, that it makes sense to require mask wearing or whatever it may be, I don't have a problem with that, and I will respect TfL's decision. Outside of that, walking down the street, I'll make my own choice. Personally, walking down the street, I wouldn't wear a mask because it's outside, um, and, that, and, that's, and that's fine. It's very bizarre, isn't it? It's mixed up. It's, very, it's no wonder people say this messaging from this government is mixed up. I mean, it's quite ironic, isn't it, that the Chancellor and the Prime Minister on Freedom Day uh, are having to sit in, in their rooms, not able to go out. Well, I don't think it's mixed up because there are very clear, there's a very clear national position, okay, which is that the restrictions have all lifted. But individual organisations, if they want to go further, 
can do so. And TfL have chosen to do that. And as I say, as a Londoner, um, I, I respect that. And by the way, I'm not used to sitting here defending TfL, but on this... on this, Well, I'm sorry to have to have gone on about it for so long, but it's quite a big question, this, Chris, and I think it's going to be a problem for you guys. And I think that's why uh, whenever you go back and talk to Cabinet, you should say that there's an issue here because it's not going to go away. People are not going to be happy to be told that they can't use the service that they've paid for just because they won't wear a mask when the government have said they don't need to. You see what I yeah, mean? But, yeah, and we're obviously going around in circles a bit. I think an, like, an organisation like TfL running the Tube, I think are entitled, if they think it's appropriate, to have restrictions that go beyond what is required by law. And you have that the whole time, right? You have people running restaurants, may have conditions. Some restaurants or nightclubs have a dress code, right? And they won't let you in unless you're wearing certain things. It's not the same right? thing. That's, well, in, people running an organisation are entitled to impose restrictions that go beyond what is legally required. Are and you legally TfL required to wear a mask in Downing Street? We're not legally required to wear a mask anywhere now. Do you wear a mask in Downing Street? Um, if I if I was invited into Downing Street, would I wear? Well, I don't wear a mask in. Uh, well, in, in Parliament, I've been wearing a mask, and I've been sitting in Parliament. Unless I'm speaking, I've worn a mask in the in the Chamber of Parliament. And is that um, going to continue? Sure if, is that going to continue? I'm, I'm not sure if that's well. I haven't been into Parliament today, so I, I don't know. Well, no, but you're in the government, Chris. I mean, are you saying in in Parliament you don't need to wear a mask? What is, what's the rule? Well, it's, it's up to it, exactly the same as TfL. There is no national legal requirement to wear a mask uh, in Parliament. All right. okay? Well, let me ask you the it's question another way. It's up to the organisation. No. Well, well, all right, let me ask you a simpler question. Has Parliament demanded that you wear a mask? Well, I haven't been in yet, so I don't know. But well, we don't know. Come on, Chris. Have they demanded? It's quite, quite a relevant question, given that you've said TfL have got the right to do it. Have Parliament done it? Well, Parliament have got the right to do it. What yeah, they have decide, they done it, though? I, I don't know. I haven't been in yet today. Right. Let's talk about this new plan for immigration, because we're just, as you say, going around in circles. I think you'll have a bigger problem if it turns out that you can go into Parliament without wearing a mask, but we can't go on the tube. But we have to wear one. But let's let's leave that there. Tell us about this new immigration plan. Yeah, so we're introducing we've introduced a new bill. It's got its second reading uh, in Parliament today to be debated with or without masks. And it intend and it, it intends to do two things. It intends to be fair to those people who are in genuine need of protection. So genuine refugees who are in dangerous places, for example, somewhere around Syria. Um, we're going to continue offering them a route to the UK via the resettlement programme, which uh, has run for the last uh, six years in particular. Uh, we've seen more people being resettled into the UK than any other European country. We stand by our commitment to the world's most vulnerable. But when people are trying to enter the country illegally and unnecessarily, for example, by small boat, we intend, uh, we, we think that's completely wrong and we uh, stand against that. This bill provides additional measures to stop that happening, which I can go through in a moment if you, if you want me to. We're well, also... I'd like to know how you can stop them because up until now, this year, I think there's been several thousand people coming by that method and none of them have been stopped. Yeah, so the, the bill has a number of measures that will help. First of all, um, it, it um, closes some loopholes in the law uh, to make sure that where people enter in that way, um, it is a criminal offence. And we're increasing the, the, the penalty for that from six months up to four years. We're also increasing the penalty for being a for, for being a people smuggler, because most of these people are paying people smugglers. We're increasing the penalty for people smuggling up to life imprisonment. And we're also giving uh, Border Force uh, powers of inter to, to intercept, uh, intercept and turn around boats as well. So that's a whole range of measures there in this bill that will help address this problem, which is a very serious problem, as you say. The, the, the crossings on these boats um, are firstly dangerous, obviously. Um, secondly, and secondly, they're unnecessary because the people concerned are leaving France. And France is obviously a safe country. No one's fleeing war in France. There's no war going on in France. They typically pass through countries like Belgium and Germany beforehand. So where people can perfectly easily claim asylum if they need to, there is no need at all uh, to make a crossing on a dinghy over to the UK. So we're determined to clamp down on that. Now, yes. another set of problems. But, 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 but as I say, I mean, up until now, nothing has been able to stop them, though. What's going to be different? Well, I just mentioned uh, two, two things, the, the additional powers for border force and the much stronger criminal penalties, uh, the four years imprisonment for coming in illegally. Yeah, but so, yeah, but what are the additional powers? Are you going to arrest them? Yeah, well, it means people who, and, and it closes a loophole that exists in the law at the moment. So yeah, absolutely, people who are piloting these boats with the change in the law, um, will be we're, we're arresting some already. I think we've had 65 prosecutions um, so, so far already. But we will be intending to arrest and prosecute every single person who is uh, driving one of those small boats, right. and that will happen. And what's happened to the 65 who were prosecuted? 
Well, and quite a few of them have had prison sentences of um, two, three, four years, but we want to make those prison sentences longer to act as a deterrent. Well, you want to kick them out, really, don't you? You don't really want to imprison them here at a further cost to the taxpayer, surely? Yeah, well, the other part of the bill is designed to do exactly what you're describing and make sure that people with no right to be here, uh, whether they've committed a criminal offence or they just have otherwise come to the country illegally, um, are quickly removed. And there are significant problems with the way the legal system is currently operating because people are able to make repeated claims for maybe asylum or human rights claims or modern slavery claims over a period of time, even if those claims are repeated and they're found to have no merit. And that can delay the removal of people with no right to be here, um, in some cases, quite a long time. Mm. We think that's wrong. Yeah. And we need to have a legal system which operates uh, quickly and efficiently so people who have no right to be here do get removed quickly. Yes. Well, I think if you could fix this particular problem, Chris, it would be a massive feather in the cap of the government uh, because this is something that, that a lot of my listeners talk about all the time, particularly now, for example, when you can't even go to France legally and come back without having to quarantine. People are arriving at Dover probably even as we speak who are not having to do that. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I agree. It's a, it's a huge problem. Um, you know, our borders are being, uh, you know, violated. Uh, and as I said, there's no need to leave France. France is a safe country. It's not a war zone. So, and we're absolutely determined to crack down on this. And, and the bill gives us some additional um, tools to do that. OK, Chris, thank you very much indeed. Chris Philp, the MP, uh, Home Office and Justice Minister as well, talking about a great many things, uh, including masks, which I don't think he was expecting. Never mind. Uh, it's a big deal. It is a big deal. Because if it turns out, for example, in Parliament, you don't have to wear a mask, then I'm sorry, uh, there's going to be trouble. As simple as that. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.